Welcome to the Zero Hour Podcast, sponsored by Beecher Madam, the podcast that gives you the insights, techniques, and tools into top guests from the cybersecurity, governance, forensic, and data world. Welcome to the latest episode of the Zero Hour Podcast, and today your host is Carla Reffold. We are joined by David Edwards. David is the Head of Information Security at Coventry Building Society. And this is a fascinating podcast where he speaks about his last five and a half years and how him and his team have built up information security to be one of the leading teams in the financial services out of the UK. Carla and David discuss a lot of different areas, including transformation, including team building, and a variety of other areas which link in a lot of parts of the business, including the board. So hope you enjoy. David, thank you very much for joining me today. You're welcome, thank you. So tell us a little bit about you. Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I was born, I was born um, I would say, I would say down south um, in Hastings. And I grew up actually in the northwest. And I'm in the northwest now. And, and I think in terms of education, you know, I think, like most people, you know, I, I went through um, public school, but I was very fortunate, very fortunate to get an opportunity called Lancaster University. And and there I didn't really study cybersecurity. I actually studied the, the science of images or the way images um, are communicated, which is an absolutely fascinating topic. Um, and I just thought, this is, this is a bit weird. Let's go and have a look at this. <clears throat> But naturally, I'm a technical person. I actually went into my career in IT and spent a lot of time in IT designing technologies. In fact, I have a very close relationship with the companies that um, undertake the horse racing for the UK. I, I worked for 12 years in the horse racing industry um, and the elements and private banking. Before I went to work for Comptrodome Society, and it's there where I really specialise in cybersecurity as a discipline because I absolutely love it and um, went on to get my master's degree with the University of Napier. And I, I was really proud uh, of that, um, got the class medal there, took an enormous amount of energy. And, and it's in a subject that I'm massively passionate about as well, which I'm always sharing, I'm always, I'm always reading into that. And, and that's led to an enormous amount of um, opportunity. <clears throat> you know, I've, I had the opportunity to speak at Geek Street in InfoSec, which I, I absolutely thrilled to do that. I'm speaking to you today. We won our award um, for inside security as a group, as a team, which is absolutely fantastic. And, um, you know, I have my own website where I publish information. I'm always uh, engaging with, um, with my colleagues and my wider network to share and understand and learn. So uh, I suppose if you could condense a, a manager, technical leadership individual with an absolute passion for cybersecurity, with a foundation of uh, security, education around security, then... Um, that's um, that's me, and, and I think as we talk, I think you'll see my um, wanting to learn and educate actually is a big part of how I build and lead my teams uh, over a period of time because I think it's absolutely crucial, and it, and it's a really enjoyable experience if you get it right as well. So let's talk a little bit about Coventry then, because they won the Best Financial Services Team of the Year at the Cyber Security Awards. So why do you think that was? When we applied for the award, we were really excited that we might get to be a finalist and we were really hoping we'd get to be a finalist. And we, we didn't actually expect to win, actually. And, and I'll talk why in a moment. But we were absolutely delighted. In fact, I think we were all sort of shell-stopped when we won. Um, and in some ways, that's great because the amount of energy and passion we put into what we do. I, I think if I step back and, and I look at, the, I think the recognition you gave us was at the Coventry, with any sort of CISO, I would say, or head of InfoSec that starts a new role in organisation, it creates an opportunity to understand the status quo of the organisation in terms of its market, its capability and the ability for that organization to understand whether or not the threats and the ex internal external threats are appropriately managed. And when you get someone new into the role, I think you get a fresh perspective of that. And I think 
when I joined the society, I brought a, a different perspective in the way we look at that. And if I break that perspective down into its key components, I think I think what I'm really saying is is there is an intelligence-led approach to cybersecurity. So you, know, you build the controls and the environment and the defences based on your oppositions. You really need to have a great understanding of that. And once you've got a really good understanding of your opposition, you can then start to think about, well, what what people do we need in order to, to, to if you will, win this, this particular game? What skill sets do we need to do um, to win this, uh, this type of game? And also, what type of community do we want to create? What type of personalities do we need in order to um, grow ourselves into something that is, or transform ourselves into something that is very different? And it's important at the start, I think, to get a really good baseline. And there's a number of ways you can get a baseline. You can create a capability maturity baseline, which is what we did. Or you can test your defences for effectiveness, which we also did um, uh, over, the, over the period. But we didn't just do it ourselves. What we did is we, we looked at who the regulators organisations were that did this. And I think one of the comments I said was, let's take our car to the dealer's workshop and give it a proper MOT. And I think you often get more detailed understanding doing that to what is actually wrong or what needs to be improved. But that's probably a better way of looking at it. And that enables us to create a plan. That enables us to write a strategy. That enables us to tie that strategy to where the organisation wants to go. It gives a bit of contextualization. It helps us to build a narrative and a story. And we took that we took that story to our board and we spent a, quite a lot of time working through those narratives so that they could be understood and, and really um, sponsored in a way that was really focused in terms of where we need to improve. And I, I think we're really successful at that. In fact, we're massively successful at that. Um, you know, down to the point where we sat with the board one-to-ones, we look at their exposure on the internet and we bring the whole idea of security to life and social media and so on so that they can really get them somehow relates to them and then i think what you're at that then my perspective is going through that transformation and i think you know when we went through our transformation we explore that a little bit more but when we go through our transformation it's as much about taking people with you on that journey as it is addressing the um, improvements that you need to make and as, I think as we've gone through that journey, and I think we're still inevitably on the journey all the time, I think we just took a stop to look back, you know, just look back and say, well, what did we do? You know, and we found we've done absolutely amazing amount of good stuff, you know, in delivering change, in strengthening secure operations, in uh, adopting the cloud, you know, in a secure way, tr translating to different data centres. But what this really translates down to the business had some goals that it wants to meet. It has deliverables that it needs to achieve. And we're able to enable that in a, a secure as we can way with the correct amount of balance and risk management associated with it. And I think that's a real great achievement. And I'm sure we'll have some bits to explore on that, which will be maybe interest to the audience. But I think for me, if I summarize that, it's really about understanding where you're starting from, transforming to a place you need to be, getting that support and buying from your board and your executives, buying that enterprise support, building the right team with the right people, with the right set of dynamics, personalities, and um, investing in those people so they have the right skill sets and capability to take you on that journey. And I think if you get those things right, you, I'm not saying it's easy, but actually you do, you do make great progress and people tend to fall together. Um, and in my recent email, um, updates that I do regularly along with you know, all hands, Zoom meetings and all sorts of things. I think my key message was let's be in a walking team and I think now we've done that, I think my message is changing to let's be a three-star team you know, let's be a community, let's be a family and let's drive ourselves forward and I think these culture of bringing the business into that culture and our team culture is absolutely massive in terms of making things I think there's loads to go into on that. So let's start with what you where you started with, with kind of taking that intelligence-led approach. Because a lot of people talk to us about either satisfying the regulators or they talk about kind of a whole range of 
of threats and almost defending against everything. So has taking that approach meant that you, you know, prioritise differently? Yeah, I would say so. So when we engaged with third party, we literally wanted to engage with a third party at the beginning that had a strong uh, established threat intelligence capability um, who looked into the financial industry. We weren't necessarily that worried about our peer comparison, so we weren't worried about Barclays or HSBC. Um, we were more concerned about what our position was in the financial sector and who would potentially look at us as an organisation as a target. What type of threat actor might that be? You know, and they tend to follow a basic theme. So you know, you've got your, you know, your script kiddie, you've got your organised crime, you've got your um, state sponsors, but there's a range of threat actors, insider, for example, range of threat actors. What we wanted to understand, and we, we linked this to the MicroTAP framework, um, but we also linked it to capability. We wanted to understand, well, what is an effective delivery that effectively mitigates or slows down enough that particular threat actor with their capabilities to target us. And I suppose, you know, what we could say, so for someone like the Coventry, you know, a mutual build society with mortgages and savings, then when it comes to things like state-sponsored attacks, then we're a collateral target. They're not going to be necessarily targeted. You can never rule it out, of course, but we're probably going to be a collateral target either where we're using shared infrastructure services, such as, you know, AWS or Azure and some other elements, or we just unfortunately caught up, someone like MERSC was, for example, they're ransomware. We just get caught up in an unfortunate position, like, like the NHS, for example. So we have to be vigilant and we have to have capability, but the people who are going to invest and spend time with us are more likely to be the organised crime um, organisations. And we wanted to understand how they operate and they operate against us in a number of scenarios in that they are predominantly payments driven. That's what we learned. Um, they are obviously interested in data, but their techniques that they apply are predominantly going to be driven from phishing campaigns. We may have some APT, if you will, sort of advanced and persistent threat behaviors embedded in there. They're very sophisticated because don't forget the state-sponsored techniques are moving into this landscape as a, a sort of a downstream perspective. So we do need to be good at this, um, but we necessarily need to be defending from sort of China as well. So that's where this organization sits. And what we did is we looked at our control capability. So you detect, protect, respond, recover, and you identify control. And we we spent a lot of time understanding the detail of our controls right down to the NIST um, 800 level frameworks. And we determined which controls would materially impact the threat actor capability and how and where them capability lines were based on where they were, where we were in a worst case scenario. And that created a gap, a gap that we felt was risk assessed. And if you look at that risk assessed gap, we can say, well, does that operate in this organization's tolerance for risk? And that's a really important point which is, are we operating in an environment that is outside the tolerance of risk we want to work with? And if it is, we're going to go and do something about that. If it's not, and we're prepared to take a risk in that, then that's okay. That's what the business how it wants to operate. But we, we identified a number of areas using that technique and a number of insights into the behaviours of attackers that meant that we would want to strengthen some of those core areas or give ourselves at least the ability to understand it a bit more detail. And that's how we built the foundation of our strategic transformation program. Now, you talked about kind of getting the board involved and making it personal to them. We talk a lot about how we, as security professionals, can engage the board and kind of get that buy-in. Would you say that was the kind of number one thing you did that got their engagement? Yeah, so we did a number of things on this. When we originally started out doing that capability piece with the third party, um, we actually used a different area of the business to do that for us. Even though we were driving it, we asked them to sponsor it and coordinate it for us. And we did that independent. Because what we want to do when we sit in front of the board or put this under the executive is we want to have credibility. We need to be able to stand on the facts. We need to be able to say, this is true, and I can prove this by X. 
We did several deep dives into that assessment when it came through to be absolutely confident that what we discovered or what we understood was correct. Now, coming back to engagement with the board, it's this can be sort of for a number of, of audiences, if you will. I think people in the executive have different hats depending on what they're doing. So you might have audit committees where those, those people sit. You might have risk committees where those people sit. And, of course, you've got a bigger picture. And what we actually did with InfoSec is we pulled together, with the support of the CEO, uh, a monthly group of the key members of the, the executive, but not the non-executive, to sit with us every month where we went through the findings of what we've got. This is how we want to approach it. This is the sponsorship we need. But we use that time to tell them the story. And we told them the story of how it relates to the measures that we want to do in terms of our transformation. And we built that into a set of strategic programs. So you can imagine we created an executive steer code prior to even starting the funding of the programs to make sure the executive absolutely were clued up and understood what we were doing. Once we'd done that, um, we then dissolved that group, if you will, and we decided to track the program through them other audiences where they sit their audit committees and their risk committees. And then we started a new campaign. And I use the word campaign because what we're doing is we're building a campaign, a bit like a, a political campaign, if you like, which is, if you will, bringing people along into an ideology or a way of thinking. And that new campaign, now we've got that sponsorship, was more about what we call security fitness. And we chose security fitness um, important, importantly, with a lot of support actually from a third party consultant who specializes in communication for us. We use security fitness because being secure, like being fit, is a constant activity. It's a part of your lifestyle. So the wording we use and the campaign we're using is to be security fit, quite a constant investment. And that's when we started to engage with, um, I would say, with our audience in a different lens, which is you sponsored the transformation. Now it's time to look after yourself. Those factor groups do target executives. They do um, target the brand in other countries, in uh, Korea, Mexico, USA, um, and they will take those identities of, of um, executives who are very usually publicly online individuals and, and leverage that for some element of fraud against the brand. So we needed to take them away now from the technical elements of, of information security and make it personal to them. And we've been doing that and it's been very successful. And we have newsletters and so on, you, you name it, we're in there. You know, deep dive dark web intelligence um, systems that we use to, you know, monitor what's going on. And then we apply that back to them as individuals. So if you're with us and you've potentially got an exposed um, social media account, we, we will tell you about that and we will work with you to understand how you can reduce your exposure, what that means. And we're not trying to tell the executive what we do. We're trying to give them the information so they can make choices themselves with enough information to keep themselves safe. And then that makes it personal back to the country as well. And um, and at that point, that creates a really great relationship with the executive. And that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to create great relationships and so they understand why these things need to happen. And it's not just a, something happens in the corner uh, of an organisation. And I think we've been really successful at doing that. Now, before we come on to the people in the team and what you do with them, can we talk a little bit more about that transformation? You know, where, where were you when you started to where you are now to where you are, where you want to go? Yeah, so we realised that once we understood the trend data, we were, we were a little bit, shall we say, the gaps that we found were a little bit bigger than we actually anticipated, especially in, in the ability to detect, I would say, especially in the detection space. And I think I'll call that one out because I think it's relevant. I mean, all areas need to improve it, but detection is very important. And the next question would be is, well, why was there a gap in detection in terms of transformation? And taking back to the beginning there, we'd understood the capability of the threat actor and how and the techniques they target us. And then we picked up our um, detection capability and said, well, can I really detect that? So if someone takes PowerShell, for example, and does an in-memory execution of PowerShell, and does this using a privileged account, would we know that? And that's a very different question to say what a compliance regulatory report would say, which clearly we, we're adopted to, which is, have I implemented endpoint controls to restrict privilege access uh, management, for example? 
very different questions. One question says, yes, you have for stage you're running the right technology. The other question is saying, well, can you really spot that track who's working every day to bypass the walls that you have? And that created a gap. And, um, and on that transformation then, in order to get from where we were, so we're, if you imagine we were starting from a very, you know, I would say not greenfield, that would be unfair, but it is greenfield. If you look at your threat intelligence and look at your capability to detect that, then you find actually the lens or the glasses that you've put on give you a completely different view of your landscape. And I, I'd, I'd recommend everybody takes that option to do that because it'll be, it, it can literally turn your risk profile on its head. And at which point we then set off with the right investment projects, um, investment mechanisms from sponsored by the board to address those challenges. But the important piece about this is how do you know you've measured success? And what we're measuring against isn't compliance. Did we deliver, say, endpoint detection? Our, our measure is if we run this, does it work? And one of the mechanisms we use to test that is red teaming. And we use the C-Best um, red teaming framework that's set out by the Bank of England. And we use that intelligence-led testing approach from the providers they use. And if you imagine, we see best ourselves to test whether these controls actually work. And that, that means we can simulate those threat actor capability against us and see whether or not they'll actually work. And ultimately, what, what that creates is a, yes, it works. I didn't see this activity over here because actually I hadn't anticipated they might go and move, say, from a, a low vulnerability development system into a high high critical uh, production system. And, you know, technology is massively complex. So you're not necessarily going to spot that without that, that type of test testing. So if I, if I summarize that back in terms of transformation, transformation it were, had a number of programs. It wasn't one. The biggest one I would say we moved from was in the detect space. I think by linking to Mitra, using the red team testing, linking our monitoring to Mitra, and um, transforming um, that that way of testing and undertaking that regulatory approach to intelligence-led testing, what we've ended up with is very robust control environment. And ultimately, that then demonstrates compliance, which ultimately allows us to communicate risk, which allows us to tell the board that actually, based on your tolerance of appetite, that we are operating in a good way, or we're not, or we need to do something different. And because it's intelligence-led, if the threat actor changes, our risk profile shifts with that um, and gives us a good view of where we need to pivot. And, you know, I suppose there's many things I could have picked on around that access management, risk management, delivering change control frameworks into change, which are all linked to the same type of activity. They're all threat-driven, threat threat-led, control, um, evidence-based, and then links back into what I would call an enterprise risk framework to describe it. So depends who you are in the organization, you'll get a different perspective uh, of information security. But you know, it's an evolving and challenging space that requires a lot of ongoing attention. So let's come on to the people in the team, because I know you've got a, a very strong culture around learning, um, but tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so we've. Um, so what, what I wanted to do with the team is, is transform our skill base. And I did this probably through three key areas. The first one is invested on someone working with us on a communication coach. And um, the chat we brought in, one of the founders of the uh, Plain English, um, speaking in Plain English, um, former journalist. And we brought him in on a number of levels um, to individually coach individuals about their brand, their style, the way we communicate, understanding how to use language in a way, different audiences. And we use that to bring what I would say our leadership along because in IIS and many IT departments you have very technical people who become managers, but they're really engineers. And their core skill set isn't telling stories and communicating what they know at a level that can be understood very easily by people who are not from that discipline. So it's for like an accountant telling the numbers. So I have to have faith they know what they're doing and I'm fully supportive. But I wanted to transform the language so that we could get that message across. And I think that's been massively successful. The next piece I wanted to do is to say, well, actually, maybe learning is part of the job. So, you know, we get half a day to learn. 
Kenya on Time. We run beginner and advanced um, penetration classes on a on a Friday with the different with the team. We also run what we call uh, I think it's called Defense Against the Dark Arts now, rather than the hacking club we used to have. And the reason for that is we've tailored um, for the rest of the society, but predominantly focused around IT, um, is what techniques and how these techniques work. And, and then we, we train them on that. And then we show them how they can configure systems so that it doesn't work. And we, we get used to run that twice a week pre-COVID. Now it's sort of gone down to once every two weeks. So it may pick up again. And we build labs and so on. So to make the environment creative and interesting, we actually partnered with uh, an organization that gives us um, sort of a capture the flag style gamified lab platform with around about 800 labs in it, I think, in terms of what it does. And it gives us a mitre attack matrix of the attacks. And you can click on, so going back to threat intelligence, we all know, say, um, PA505, for example, might target us. You know, they're a very sort of prominent and uh, active threat actor in financial industry. We know their techniques because we've got the intelligence and we've mapped them to MITRE. So we know we know what it needs in terms of a classification. In our gamified platform, we have a MITRE attack dashboard and we're able to create objectives around those techniques on the MITRE attack, board, attack basis. And then we're able to target that training that individual to say, well, process holding looks like a technique we want to detect. Who have we got trained on that? Mm, okay, maybe one person, fine. We'd like five people trained on that. So as part of their learning objectives and their time training, we'll target those objectives to them. And if it's too complex for them to grasp in a reasonable time frame, that's when we use the Friday um, learning sessions to bring people in and say, well, here's someone who really understands it in the team. They'll walk you through that lab in a, in a time by time. And we've recently done some stats on this, um, which showed that around 60% of learning time, even though we give people time at work, actually choose to do it in the evenings and on the weekend on that platform. And as a profile score, in terms of, I'm not a big peer comparison person, but in terms of peer comparison, we're rated around about 190 points above the financial industry average for skill set. So it's definitely given us a, um, it's definitely been a success from that perspective. But we do build underneath that a clear HR people skills perspective. And we also go for conferences. We also bring in purple teaming days where people walk through that sort of red, red team style open book approach to testing. And we also do the traditional classroom training. So if you can imagine that as a pyramid, you've got individual focused people development plan. You've got the gamified weekly platform. You've got your purple team testing, which is driving the right level of understanding. You've got your conferences, and then right at the top of the pyramid, the most expensive approach is um, targeted classroom training, where you really just need to sit around and have that focus. And if you if you combine that with our offsite, you know the fact we spend a lot of investment around understanding personality um, of how people work, we incorporate a massive amount of well-being work into that in terms of people's well-being, underpinning it in terms of work-life balance. So tell me when you work on your email, if you work. You know, 6 or 3 p.m. in the afternoon, that's totally okay. We won't be in a meeting at 3 o'clock. So we have all these, these mechanisms that come into play. But fundamentally, what we're really trying to do here is make sure that when people are informed, have the right skill set um, so that they can then go on and, and do what they need to do for their role. Now, we talk a lot in the industry about a skills gap and I've been talking for a long while about how organizations need to kind of just bring in people with an interest and upskill them to help solve that skills gap is is that what you've done if you found it kind of easier to recruit because you have such a strong training scheme in place yeah so I think there's a balance to this question I always think you need new people in your organisation who've got good skill sets. So, you know, you look at a football team, not the best analogy, you might have the Ronaldo and the Rooney in there, right? You, you tend to have your superstars. And I think they're an important part of what, of what makes your team great. What I would say, though, is that 60% of our recruitment actually into IS in the last 12 months came from internal movements, actually, um, from non-IS disciplines. So, for example, we, we recognise that you can take a lead developer who's got a real interest in security and quite rapidly cross-train them into InfoSec. 
Now, what you tend to end up with in that scenario is people are not very broad, but very specialist in, say, web application security. And uh, I'll tell you a bit what we're doing next with that in a moment. And in terms of risk, you know, we're able to understand that while people maybe in our payments environment work in the regulator's risk assessment, we could quickly retrain them in NIST and ISO and, um, and put them very rapidly into a risk control environment from information security risk perspective. And they turned out to be absolutely fantastic. I mean, really fantastic because they actually understood already the challenges to business and they already had those business contacts. So we got all of a sudden, we got a massive different perspective and, and they and brought other people into that risk story. So again, a massive success. It's not always a success, I would say. There has been occasion where we've moved people into the world with the same mechanism and they've just found out that this is not for them. The learning pace, the environment, the pace, it doesn't, it's not for them. So I would say anybody who's looking to take that approach of moving people in from the business areas, you do have to build an exit for them as well at the same time, because, you know, it isn't, I would say, you know, while we've had a good success ratio, I would say there are one or two occasions where, you know, I would have thought, well, actually, you know, this person's realized this is not for them. And what you, the worst thing you can be in is, is then having this person stuck in that role that really they don't want to be in. And actually, we're just piling more pressure on them because it's better in part. So you do have to take it with a balance and you do have to be cautious because it is people. Um, but in terms of the training, especially around the technical and the risk spaces in terms of lateral movement of people, I would say getting people targeted training in a specialism is great. But, I would, but you can't replace, why you need your superstars sometimes, is you can't replace 10 years of experience working across multiple projects and then I've gained a very broad understanding of InfoSec. And there are some environments where that's actually really important especially in big delivery programs, multi-million pound delivery programs that have driven a massive amount of change. Um, sometimes you need that umbrella view. And in that space, I would say there's still a challenging skill gap in that area. Um, hopefully people will grow into it. But again, to my previous point, what you don't want to do is promote people into that position too quickly because they're enthusiastic. You still need to have that foundation of execution to build from. So I wouldn't say we've completely solved the problem. But what I would say in terms of niche technical specialism, we've actually been really successful. And have you found that's helped with the gender split by being able to move people from different disciplines? Yeah, so interestingly, I mean, I'm not going to ask that, but it must be, we've got a gender split of around about 50-50, I would say. Um, my management team is 50-50 in terms of, um, you know, um, in terms of gender. I think broadly across the discipline, I would say it's um, around about 50-50. What, what I would say in that is I think it's still maybe more of a male dominance in the technical, deep dive technical space. And I, I'm not sure about that, why that is at the minute uh, from that perspective. And, and we do work, we do, we, we do pay a lot of attention to that at the Coventry, actually, right down to the language we use. You know, so I'll give a great example. You know, we wouldn't in a meeting say, let's go and see if he could do this. Um, we're actually very conscious that actually anyone could do it. So we might say, you know, who, who's the person who can get this? And it might seem really minor thing to do, but actually um, what we need to be making sure of is that we're creating the right level of opportunity and investment in everybody, but especially um, with our our female colleagues, we really need to um, make sure that we're, we're enabling and giving the right level of support and confidence to, to go and take the opportunities that are presented. Because males, um, we, we are a little bit more aggressive. We're a little bit more sort of prepared sometimes. And sometimes you do have to create a level playing field. And I think we're seeing some benefits from that. And I think where we brought people in is absolutely fantastic. We've got some amazing people. Um, but I would say we need to work harder in, especially the technical disciplines, um, giving people the right level of support to move into that space. And I would like to see our gender balance in the, I would say, technical deep dive areas uh, balance up. And, and that's actually something in my new program that I've created, which is a community driven to drive people to the OSCP certification, is in those areas. That's something I'm watching really closely because if you're feeder sort of um, skill gaps is predominantly driven by men, for example, coming from lateral movement, then you're only going to end up reinforcing that later. And ideally, I think there is a, 
um, I don't think it's just about gender, I think it's about age as well. I'll just touch on that. I think making sure that people, a mixed gender of age, um, so mixed age, the mixed gender, ethnicity, all the opportunities are there. And we've got to make sure that if we're seeing it weighted in one direction, we've got to ask, well, why? You know, why are we not seeing that, that, that diversity in that group? And what is it that's preventing that? And we need to go and understand it. And it, it might not result in any difference, but I do think the opportunity is there. And that's something we're, as you can tell, speaking, really, really passionate about, but I think we're really, really proud of it as well. Not, I, I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I do think the fact it's on the agenda and it remains on the agenda um, is really, really important. Well, I, I would say that having a 50-50 split in your leadership team is a huge achievement. We do see companies that have that split across the team, but actually their leadership team is, is really underrepresented. So I think that's a really great achievement. One thing I really value people work with work beyond the organisation for a very long time. So one of my team members has been there for 30 years, worked the organisation for 30 years. And um, for me, that's absolutely massive strength for her to be in our team. And it gives us an enormous amount of um, capability. And then you've got people in the team, I think, who've just who've joined in the last year in the management team that we've brought in. But I, So I think when it comes to diversity, it's gender, it's not having stereotypes, it's seeing for what's in front of you and capability that's presented and it's investing in people. And if, I, I often believe, well, I truly believe that if you create the right level of investment for people, the people that are really going to drive you the right value and commitment step up and they grasp it and they absolutely drive it. And they're the type of um, individuals that I surround myself with, to be honest, with people who are passionate, driven, and they've got a hunger for getting stuff done. And I don't really have a stereotype of the individual that does that. Um, I think that's anybody who's prepared to step up and do that. Now, I do want to ask you about the evil Alexa. Oh, right, yeah, the evil Alexa. Okay, yeah. So part of my... Um, so one of the things I'm very interested in, in as a, as a, on, a personal, on, a, on a personal sort of research level, and, and I spoke at Geek Street on InfoSec on this point, was understanding a standard model of language that can be used um, to, I would say, drive social engineering. And this is on my website. And, um, and basically I've created a taxonomy of, of uh, language linked to what I'm called human vulnerability. And I'll give you a great example of human vulnerability. A great example of human vulnerability is charity. Because a charitable person is very trusting, they're very giving. But there is, an, there is a group of people in the world who would take that vulnerability and manipulate it for themselves. And then the, you may then give your money to someone who's you know, a charity, for example, and they're, they're creating some kind of fraud. There is a, in my research, I, I look to identify the standard sets of classifications of personality that were vulnerability. But I also want to understand what language can be used to trigger that vulnerability. So you've got a lot of human being defense mechanisms so you're not i'm not you're not just going to give me money if you're charitable person so there must be something i need to do to um structure that so that you do do that and we can call it you know we're going to exploit your human vulnerability and one of my theories was is that you can write a standard set of playbooks or com communications which drive people to a specific targeted goal and i, I suppose it's not fair to say even alexa because i think the amazon alexa is a great product but we'll call it a, a smart, um, call it a bad smart device. That's nice. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't want any sort of action from Amazon. But um, and and what I did is I created a, a platform that essentially undertakes phishing attacks, which is where people talk talk to you. Phishing attacks are very different to a normal conversation, but you may not notice the attacker is driving the conversation. They are in control of it, not you you into i would say probably binary conversations binary decisions so there's something in your account you need to do something about it okay they're leading you with their language into a what i would call a very fixed decision in your mind they're we're closing the scope of your uh, ability to make um, their boundary of decisions because it's a decision boundary so you can my theory was is what if i could create a real-time system that could have a full conversation using the technologies that are out there based on machine learning that was able to take this model, implement it, 
and then drive a targeted conversation and move the human to a point where they could manipulate them in that way. And I'll use the word manipulation because I think it is. Um, and it's not a word I use often. And the machine I created was, for example, I'll give you the example of one of the scenarios. Um, the machine would call the help desk and say, hi, um, I'm presenting with the director, but I can't get to a website. You know, Can you help me? And there's a code boundary decision. The person's going to say yes. But the machine doesn't understand the word yes. It understands your behavior of classification. So it knows your language is meant to a positive classification. And then what it then go on to do is talk to you. And in real time, you, you know, I'll, I'll tell you the data afterwards, but it'll then go on to say, well, you know, I, I don't really want to come out and speak to you um, to get this checked. If I send you the email, the web address, could you just check it works? And then if it does work, if it does work, it must be my machine and, and I'll come and see you. And if the person says, yeah, no problem, then the machine will send them the data for them to click on the link. And what we've got is someone clicking on the link. So the machine understood the number of paths, if you will, or the number of uh, variations of that conversation and is able to respond, respond in real time, like this conversation, um, to make a person do that. And then with a number of volunteers, I think it was a small group, around about 40 or 50, um, we vo they volunteered to put themselves through this test and they were told they would be called up by a machine and manipulated in this way. And when we realised that, or when I realized that this machine might be working was when people called me up later and said, you haven't called me yet. And um, it turned out that around about, I think it was around about 45%, and I might seem a bit low, but 45% of the people didn't understand they were talking to a machine and gave us the data that we asked for. We won't tell you what we asked for, but you wouldn't give it in a normal scenario. And that's a really interesting figure, right? Because if you compare that to something like phishing, which is a very lower a very low amount of uh, response rate, you know, then what, what it meant was is this, this, this machine uh, was able to um, get a very good success rate. And a large part of the uh, failures around the 55% were actually technical problems because this was a prototype where it broke or people recognized it was a machine because it wasn't flowing correctly. And when we eradicated the, um, the technical problems, which we didn't publish, um, it was more in the 90% land of people not realizing they were speaking to a machine um, and around about sort of 60% of people giving us the data. This is one of my projects that I worked on. Um, I found it absolutely fascinating. And I think as we go forward, um, you know, especially when we look at fraud and the way things are going and, you know, you start to see two-factor authentication come in, all these other sounds of control, then my theory was these machines might be able to do a bit more of an automation of that and they can maybe understand language behaviors that gives them a bit of early warning system. Um, or maybe you just use it for marketing and tell people that you want them to buy a new toothpaste and I don't think that's a very ethical use for it. So there's definitely some ethical boundaries in it. Absolutely love it. And I suppose what it shows is, is I've got this real passion for researching new ideas and infosec and understanding where they are. I'll give you a great example on this where I think it'll be used. The language pattern analysis probably shows language is different. And as a result, maybe we can put that on a person's phone who's vulnerable. Maybe it flashes red if that call is something unusual that meets a profile of manipulation. And if you're a vulnerable older person, maybe that's a really good, fantastic indicator that something's not to trust here. So lots of good can come from it, but clearly if it goes into the wrong hands, a lot of bad can come from it, which is why I think that this type of research with the University of Edinburgh is... Um, you know, was probably locked down in terms of its um, technology and code quite quite effectively and an ethical uh, review has done prior to us winning it. But absolutely fascinating, I think. Well, I think it's fascinating that sort of 45%, um, you know, having been told they were going to be talking to a machine, didn't recognise it. I would say that's actually really high when you're expecting that. Yeah, we didn't, to be honest with you, I, I thought it would... When I did it, and um, I decided to run the test, and this thing wasn't, the, the machine was sophisticated, but I didn't have time to build the phone module, so I actually just sell it to microphone from a mobile phone to make it work, and then stuck a, a speaker on it to, to listen as the, as the language was processed. And um, I, I think what had happened was is, is the quality wasn't that great in terms of the conversation because of that, and I think that meant that it didn't sound like a machine, it sounded like a bad line. And, um, and and the, the natural language uh, processing was 
was reasonably good. And one of the challenges, the biggest challenge we faced, I faced in that was actually making the pauses in the conversation feel fairly real. That's a big part of it. You know, if the pause is natural in the conversation, you're less likely to detect that this might be an automated call. Um, yeah, it, it is a fascinating system. And we actually demoed, which is a pre-recorded, obviously intersects very loud place, but um, I think on, on the uh, YouTube, there's actually a recording of that conversation. And we I recreated a, a, a recording from the BBC fraud where someone's asked to give them their card number on the back of the fraud and we just let the machine do the entire conversation. So yeah, uh, quite, quite fascinating, really fascinating. No, it is. Well, we end each podcast with 10 quick fire questions. So are you, are you ready? I'm ready, go for it. What turns you on professionally? Um, I think that um, the unknown, I think starting at the bottom of the, the mountain, getting out the foothills and um, going after something where you don't really know whether you're going to succeed or not. And I think for me, that moment of challenge really, 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 really drives me. What turns you off professionally? I think if I'm surrounded by people who are not passionate about subjects, are not contributing to the vision in terms of the common goal, I think that creates a really challenging environment um, for me because I think if you imagine I'm passionate about getting to the top of the mountain and, you know, I, I suppose one of my expectations is that, you know, we develop and we bring people along in that journey, which is a key part to it. But I think when that, when that mindset around you isn't like that, I find that really challenging uh, from that perspective. How do you unwind? Yeah, so I uh, play music. I write music. I uh, spend lots of time with my family. I love my family. I like walking. Um, I live in Lancashire, so it's got a great countryside, uh, beautiful walks, and um, just about an hour away from the Lake District. So I go there every night. I have my own little. Um, I would say, if I'm completely honest, uh, my static caravan. But I think my wife likes to call it a holiday home. But I, I do enjoy going there and uh, spending time just away from the world and just. You know, turning my computer off and just thinking, well, you know what, I'm going to go walk against the beach um, and um, watch the sunset. I, I love doing stuff like that. What profession other than your own would you like to try? <laughs> a really good question. I mean, I've worked pretty much everywhere in IT, I think, in terms of, um, of what I've done. I think, you know, as I was reborn, I think, and um, I, I started my career from the beginning, I think I probably would have worked, I think I might have gone more down the medical profession because I think it's very technical, I think it's very people-orientated, and I think you do a lot of good. And um, I think I might have gone back and redone that. You know, it would have, I think it'd be nice to be a GP. I don't, they might agree with me, but I think that'd be awesome, working with your community in a way that helps them. So I think, you know, in any sort of thing, I think which is around about social care and that sort of stuff, I think I'd love to do that. And, and I think long-term in my career, as I come to the end of it, you'll probably see me go to university and um, hopefully get the opportunity to teach there. Um, because for me, I think that's a, a good way to give back. So there's a big giving back part of the personality that I think I would do. What activity gives you the most energy? Um, that, that's a great one. I mean, scientifically, it's probably eating. <laughs> but uh, in terms of activity, in terms of what I do, I, I love doing the capture the flag stuff. So we talked about the Gamify platform. I'm on there. Um, I'm right up there on the leaderboard, uh, competing against my team. Uh, I don't like it when I'm not winning. So uh, I think for me, work, especially when it comes down to learning new stuff, um, researching stuff, and um, you know, and competing with my colleagues in terms of the game five capture the flags uh, sessions we run. I must admit, I, I would probably do that all night and probably not sleep until the following morning if um, if everyone was staying on the platform. So. I'm really passionate about this stuff and um, sometimes I have to switch off from that because, you know, I've become a little bit obsessed with it. Who is your biggest inspiration? Uh, well, uh, I probably, the people listening to the podcast will probably uh, not agree with me on this one. So I'm a Manchester United fan. Um, I think my biggest inspiration is David Beckham. I know that seems a bit bad because maybe it should be a scientist or something like that. But I, I just think, you know, with that individual, because I grew up watching football, you know, I always remember him scoring that goal in the World Cup. 
against Greece. And I just thought, well, you know what, here's a person who, um, has had to work really, really hard to be at the top of his game. He's under enormous amount of pressure to um, take results. And he made mistakes through his career, which he's had to come back from. And I just really like those qualities. And also, I enjoy watching football. So I think, you know, I wouldn't aspire to be a football player. I'm certainly not poor enough. But I do think that the adversity of coming back, dealing with the moment of pressure, uh, standing up and representing a, a whole world of people is a really inspiring thing. So um, I think that's the person I probably look to occasionally and think, well, okay, you know, especially in the sports industry, I think there's some really talented and massively inspirational people there. If you had to present a speech right now, what one word would be its subject? Evolution. You are at your best when you're doing what? I would say working with my team to solve a problem that we haven't solved yet. If today was the last day of your life, what one lesson would you impart? I would say take the opportunity to at least have a good glass of whiskey. Um, you don't want to uh, live your whole life without at least spending time to relax and, and actually experience the luxuries that you're working for and earned through your life in a balanced way. So don't just spend all your life working and then miss out on all the positive, happy moments that you could have and then look back and say, I wish I'd go back and live with them again. Take the opportunity now. Find time. And last one, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say as the reason he is letting you through the gates? Well, I think hopefully he'd say, well, he forgives me for all the things I did wrong because <laughs> nobody's perfect. So that would be a big relief, wouldn't it? Um, the second point, I think, in that perspective, <clears throat> I think it'd be nice if they you know, understood all the good I did as well in that balance. If, you know, recognise the contribution to life and the people around you that you've made and um, and just demonstrating that that energy and effort weighs more than you know the mistakes you make through life if, I, if I'm completely honest in person without that I think ultimately you want to get to the get to that position where you look back and say well you know what I did the best I can and if that was recognized by your family and your peers and you left people with great memories then you know what I think that's a win at the end of the day um, and that'd be good Thank you for listening to today's episode. For the latest episodes, please subscribe and for future conversations, reach out on Twitter and LinkedIn.